Good evening. In the news tonight, Donald Trump has chosen his nominee to take Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court. Protesters demanding justice for Breonna Taylor are attacked in Los Angeles. A federal, a U.S. federal judge has barred the Trump administration from prematurely ending counting for the U.S. Census. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, filling in this evening for Paul DiRienzo. And this is the WBAI Evening News for Friday, September 25th, 2020. Minutes before we went on the air, President Donald Trump announced he was nominating Amy Coney Barrett to succeed Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. Coney Barrett, 48, is a federal appeals court judge from Indiana who is favored by religious conservatives who believe she will provide a decisive fifth vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. Trump is pushing for Coney Barrett to be, to be seated on the Supreme Court before the November 3rd election. Coney Barrett's selection comes as former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Gator Bins Bader Ginsburg became the first woman to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol today. Bader Ginsburg was eulogized as a visionary lawyer who who secured numerous everyday legal rights for women that are now taken for granted, and as a judge who served with distinction on the Supreme Court for 27 years. Earlier this week, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio announced the Brooklyn Municipal Building would be renamed in honor of Ginsburg, who was born and raised in the borough. Ginsburg's death one week ago has set off a power struggle over the direction of an ideologically divided Supreme Court, with the Republicans holding the upper hand. Fifty-one Republican senators have already committed to support Trump's nominee. Protests continued yesterday in New York City and across the country for a second night following a Louisville, Kentucky grand jury's failure to indict three police officers in the death of Breonna Taylor. Taylor, a 26-year-old EMT, was shot and killed in her bed in March after the trigger-happy police carried out a no-knock drug raid on what turned out to be the wrong address. In Los Angeles, a pickup truck drove into a crowd of protesters injuring one person. The Trump administration has sought to wind down the U.S. census count at the end of this month to the detriment of major cities like New York, where it is hardest to count all of its residents. Earlier today, a federal judge in California issued a preliminary nationwide injunction barring the Trump administration from moving up the scheduled completion date from October 31st to September 30th. The ruling came after evidence filed this week showed that top Census Bureau officials believe that ending the headcount early would seriously endanger its accuracy. This is Brooklyn Census enumerator Amber Gargarian, who has been pounding the pavement in Flatbush reacting to the news. 
that's been doing census operations in the past few months has just known that we're not going to be able to count everybody by this September 31st deadline. So now that it's back to the original COVID deadline of October 31st, there seems to be at least a little bit more room um, with the momentum that we have to get a good amount of the people counted, at least more than were counted in the 2010 census, which was only 50% of the estimated population of Brooklyn. We will talk with we will talk with Amma Gagarian more later in the show about her work as a census enumerator and the struggle to get an accurate head count amid a pandemic and attempted sabotage by the Trump administration. Uh, and finally, in the headlines, uh, we go uh, we go to the London extradition hearing of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, which entered its 14th day. With the court hearing from an, an American metadata forensic a specialist who testified that Chelsea Manning didn't need to crack a password to access classified documents, turning on its head the U.S. government argument that Assange conspired with Manning to hide her identity for computer intrusion to the classified Internet protocol router network known as Searnet. Rebecca Miles has been covering the Assange extradition hearing and files this report. At the end of the third week, the court heard on Friday from Patrick Eller, who served 20 years in the U.S. Army and was a digital forensic examiner at U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Command Headquarters in Quantico, Virginia. He reviewed the computer intrusion allegations against Assange, documents submitted by the U.S. government and transcripts of the trial of U.S. Army whistleblower Chelsea Manning and provided a report to the court of his findings. Eller reviewed the transcript of electronic conversation allegedly between Assange and Manning, Ella said it's impossible to determine what the purpose of the request for cracking the password hash would be. The U.S. government alleges the purpose was to assist Manning so that she could obtain classified documents to ultimately leak to WikiLeaks. Ella said it wouldn't be necessary for Manning to have because she had access to classified documents which she leaked via the military's intranet system, access which Ella estimated to include millions of other people. Plus, Manning had the use of a Linux CD to anonymize her when she accessed other data. The defense has argued breaking the hash was so Manning could access computer games and video which would be restricted on her computer system. During the cross-examination, James Lewis QC tried to persuade Ella that it was useful for Manning to crack the password hash with Assange's help. Lewis pointed out a Microsoft memo in 1999 that suggested the password hash had vulnerabilities. Ella said that a later memo that year, Microsoft had posted a patch for the vulnerability that was so strongly encrypted to protect from offline password attacks and that he said makes it computationally infeasible to apply brute force in order to break it and later said during re-examination that even a skilled hacker couldn't do it and that Manning already had access to classified documents and it wasn't necessary in order to hide her identity. There is one more week of testimony in the hearing followed by four weeks to prepare closing submissions. Assange won't receive a decision in his extradition case until January 2021. Rebecca Miles, WBAI Pacifica Radio, New York. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent. 
uh, New York City's radical newspaper and website, uh, now celebrating its 20th anniversary this fall. Uh, I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. As I mentioned uh, during the headlines earlier today, a federal judge barred the Trump administration from ending the 2020 census a month early. The latest twist in a years of political and legal warfare over perhaps the most contested population count in a century. The outcome of the census affects everything from political representation to how much funding your city and state will receive over the next 10 years. To talk more about these developments, we're joined by the independence Amba Gagarian. Amba has been uh, doing work as a census enumerator this summer uh, and has also uh, written about that for the independent. Amba, welcome to the WBAI Evening News. Hi, John. Thanks. You bet. So uh, before we talk a little bit more about uh, the judge's uh, ruling today and and what it means, uh, can you describe for your audience uh, the work you do as a census enumerator? There's uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of you uh, who've been fanning out around the city these past few months. Uh, What what exactly have you all been doing? Yeah, so most of our listeners probably have seen someone with a census bag you know, running around their neighborhood at least once. Um, But an enumerator is basically just a fancy word for someone who goes door to door and knocks on people's doors who have not yet filled out the census um, themselves, whether that be online or through mail or whatever, um, and tries to get the count for that apartment or that household. And so, you know, that's what you do. You get a list of addresses around your neighborhood, and you go and you go door to door and you knock and you try and get the information, which is not always easy. Not right. Now, you uh, live in the Flatbush uh, area of Brooklyn, and, and that's the area you've been enumerating. Uh, can you talk about uh, some of your experiences uh, uh, trying to uh, help get everybody counted in, in Flatbush? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a good way to put it is that sometimes – I come home feeling really defeated and even angry, and sometimes I come home feeling like, wow, I just, like, met the nicest stranger ever. So, you know, it's anything from that negative to that positive. Sometimes people um, are so happy that I'm out there doing this. They invite me in. They offer me water. Um, We're taking COVID protections, of course, with masks and lots of sanitizing. We're also passing out masks. But, you know, some people are really sweet, and, and they're happy to give the information, and they're happy to help, and they sort of, like, understand or, or understand once I explain it to them what the importance of the census is as far as uh, money for our communities and then representation in the House of Representatives goes. And then other people, um, you know, slam the door on me, will not answer the buzzer, or have threatened me and other enumerators, whether it's because they think that I'm, you know, soliciting something, which is often the case. Um, I've learned throughout this process that a lot of people don't know what the census is, um, which is, I think, a lack of education, you know, uh, on the government's part. Um, But also sometimes people just don't want to give me that information. They don't trust the government at all, you know. And and Um, what exactly – Right. And for people who are listening who who may not have uh, participated yet in the census, what is the information uh, that you're required to ask for? So it changes year to year. Every census has a different list of questions. Some have been very long in the past, like in the 1880s, they were super long. You know, this is one of the shorter ones ever. And it's essentially just age, race, ethnicity, um, and if you rent or own your home and the relationship between you and everybody else in your home. Um, so it's pretty simple. 
And, and uh, just to be clear, uh, that you all are not asking about people's immigration status, which has been a, a flashpoint leading up to the census this year. Fortunately, we are not asking about the immigration status, but in 2017, as some people may know, uh, um, an executive order from the president, from President Trump, leaked um, suggesting that immigration status be asked, and that was barred, and that's not happening. But you know, a lot of people, a lot of undocumented people, were already extremely wary of of anything the government tells them about whether or not you know there's connections with immigration there, because they often do lie about whether or not there's a connection between police and immigration or something like that. So no, undocumented people do not want to share their information, you know. So luckily, you know, I'm telling people they don't have to give me their name. Luckily, we can just log how many people live in the apartment. I see. And turning to today's judicial ruling, the injunction that went out from the judge in Northern California, which extends across the whole country, can you talk about what it means for the census counting to be extended another month? The deadline was originally going to be this upcoming Wednesday, and now it's been extended apparently to October 31st, which was the original deadline. Yeah, October 31st was the original deadline, and on August 9th, which was two days before the first enumerators were supposed to hit the streets, um, Trump made an announcement saying that it would be moved up to September 30th. And, you know, I'm not in the upper levels, but I think basically everyone just freaked out and, and has been scrambling. We've been scrambling, and, you know, we just know that we're not, there was this knowledge that we just weren't going to count everybody. So hopefully back with the original deadline, because everyone did work so hard in September, now I'm a little hopeful that maybe we'll get a more accurate count than we've gotten in the past couple censuses. Um, but I, I don't know exactly how it's going in southern states and other states, because a couple of weeks ago we got this urgent message saying, you could travel down to southern states to enumerate down there. Um, so I don't know if October 31st will still be enough time for everybody, but it's it's better. Right, you could uh, you could be out enumerating on uh, Halloween, uh, uh, mixing in with uh, all the trick or treaters. Um, <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you would want to uh, tell people uh, who are listening about the census and and how they can participate if they still need well, to do so? Yeah, I think for everybody to to go fill out the census and if you on the personal one where you fill it out like where you just go as an individual online um you can't opt out of answering questions but you know you can put in person one for your name if you don't want to put your name just getting that number is really important because 1.5 1.5 trillion dollars of federal federal money will be allocated based on the headcount, um, and 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 I know I, you this this ran earlier, but Brooklyn only counted 50 percent in 2010, which is, you know, we can kind of see the lack of funding here. So I think that's really important, and just know that the public sector is, is under attack, and we need to do everything we can to keep it alive. Okay, well we'll leave it there. Uh, Amber Gagarian uh, from The Independent, thank you for joining us so much this evening on the WBAI Evening News. Thank you. You bet. All righty. Well, we'll be back uh, uh, after this short break uh, to talk some more about uh, what's going on in the public schools with uh, with online instruction and uh, some uh, developments that our uh, reporter Katia Schwenk uh, uncovered in her most re- recent article. 
There's already so much pain, so much pain, so much pain. There's already so much pain, and there ain't nothing else we can do. Hey, she Coming through right here, through right here, through right here. We got tanks coming through right here, and there ain't nothing else we can do. All was Fight by Wyatt Waddell. You are listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by the independent New York City's radical newspaper and website. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief, filling in this evening for Paul DiRienzo. I ordinarily host the Monday evening show and, and invite everybody to join me then as well. It's great to be here with everybody uh, tonight. Uh, earlier today, we completed our 20th anniversary edition of the Independent, which will uh, go to press later tonight and hit the streets of New York on Monday. You can also uh, follow all our latest coverage at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-N-T dot O-R-G. And before we uh, go to our next uh, guest, uh, I just want to also encourage everyone uh, who can do so to support this radio station, uh, WBAI, and and keep it uh, beaming it's a signal across uh, the New York City area and all the, the great programming it does. Uh, uh, so you you can uh, make a donation at uh, give2wbai.org. And uh, please, uh, if you can, become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month and, and really help support this station. So in our second segment, uh, we're going to uh, talk ab- about – the virtual classroom, which has become uh, more and more prevalent uh, this year uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic and the fears of uh, 
both uh, parents, students, and teachers of the coronavirus being passed around uh, in uh, public school buildings. However, uh, the virtual classroom comes with a number of complications, including uh, uh, what will happen to student privacy uh, when they're online all day and every keystroke uh, they make uh, can be monitored. So to talk with us about this uh, this evening, we are joined by Katia Schwank, an independent uh, education correspondent. She had the cover story on the independent last month in August, uh, looking at growing concerns that were expressed then about the safety of, of going back to school. And this, this month, uh, she has an article on the uh, concerns about what's going to happen with the uh, student privacy. Uh, Katia, thank you for joining us on the WBAI Evening News tonight. Thanks so much, John. I'm happy to be here. You bet. So just to dive into your article, can you talk about uh, kind of the the lay of the land right now with what's going on with uh, all the the virtual instruction and and what these concerns are uh, that are uh, uh, growing about uh, student privacy? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, these concerns definitely predate uh, coronavirus, right? So technology over the last, I mean, decades has been more and more prevalent in classrooms. Um, teachers and schools or schools are more and more often, you know, sourcing out different parts of the learning process to tech companies. Um, so you see stuff like the rise of, you know, behavior management platforms, uh, uh, things like that. But, you know, Obviously, the pandemic has really accelerated tr- this trend. So we're seeing, you know, platforms that weren't really intended to be used um, for educational purposes, like Zoom is really a good example of this, um, that were maybe geared for a more business setting. Now these platforms are, you know, things that schools have to rely on for all of their learning. Um, so, yeah, this has a lot of privacy advocates really concerned because even though there are, you know, strong federal protections for student data, there's a lot of questions about whether these companies and these platforms are in compliance with the law. There's a lot of questions about whether students um, are using platforms that, you know, might not be intended for students themselves, so their data might be getting um, tracked that way. So, yeah, there are, just, there are just a lot of concerns, and, you know, these, you know, these companies really do um, are able to collect a lot of data about, you know, who's using them online if they would like to. So, Right. And one thing I was struck about reading your article is uh, that the, the privacy protections that do exist only exist for uh, students up, I believe, to the age of 12 or 13. Is, is that correct? And then after that, what, they're fair game? Yes. So, well, there are some, it depends on the state in some cases, but federal law um, really only prohibits, really only has strong prohibitions um, on data collection of, of uh, people under 13. So once you're 13, um, the amount of personal data that can be collected about you online um, is far greater. Um, so yeah, that's a huge concern because, you know, we have kids 14, 15 who are still in high school, um, who are really susceptible to things like predatory advertising, um, whose locations um, can be freely collected, um, things like that. A lot of platforms that are educational, like Google Classroom, for example, says that, you know, it's not collecting that kind of data on students that use it, um, but we really have to sort of trust them on, on their word at that point. So, 
Right. And in 2014, New York State uh, adopted uh, several strong and hard-won privacy privacy requirements uh, for vendors that handle student data. However, it seems like uh, from the reporting in your article, uh, it's one thing to write that law. The enforcement is turning to be turning out to be more difficult. And uh, here in New York City, uh, you know, the DOE has been overwhelmed by so many of the challenges around coronavirus that this is one that they uh, may have dropped the ball on. Yeah, no, and that's something I will say that, you know, it makes sense that these concerns are, you know, second on the list right now, you know, when teachers and schools are dealing with life or death issues. But, I mean, you're right that New York State really has strong privacy protections for students. Uh, And, you know, in many cases, the DOE does not seem to get the in compliance, you know, their contracts. Um, Like, for example, one of the stipulations of the law is that contracts with vendors who are collecting student data be made public, that there are certain stipulations in those contracts that prevent um, the sale of student data, the use of it for commercial purposes. Um, You know, we're still really waiting for the DOE to catch up with those those requirements. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's really on the minds of a lot of parents um, and privacy advocates in New York City. Yeah, and uh, we'll have to wrap up here in about one minute. But uh, can you describe who some of the the groups or individuals are in New York City that are uh, leading the fight around this to ensure that the DOE does protect the privacy of all of its students? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are a lot of groups that are working on this, but it's not their primary concern. But you do have uh, Lainey Hampson, for example, with Class Size Matters and also the coalition um, of parents who works on student privacy, um, and she has been, you know, a huge figure in this movement. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you have you know, organizers for justice um, who are working on these issues as well. So it really is, you know, a pretty diverse um, movement. All righty. Well, Katia Schwenk, we'll, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us again this evening on the WBAI Evening News. Thank you, John. It was great to talk to you. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. So that's uh, about going to do it for tonight's show. I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI WBAI, and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to WBA, going straight to give to the number 2 WBAI.org. Again, the phone number. Get your pen and paper ready. Is 516-620-3602. You can make a one-time donation or, better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month and help keep shows like this on the air on WBAI. Last of all, I want to thank uh, everybody who helped with this show, uh, Amber Gagarian, uh, Renee Feltz, Leah Duran. And, and you can follow the latest news at The Independent at independent.org, and our uh, new 20th anniversary issue will hit the streets on Monday. So we'll be back, and I'll be back on uh, Monday at my regular time with the WBAI Evening News then. I look forward to uh, being with all of you that night as well. Bye-bye.